0: Hey, bassoonists, are you looking to ramp up your reed making? Well, Barton Kane has the solution for you. They offer over 60 variations of precision, gouged, shaped, and profiled bassoon cane. Use coupon code free Shipping for orders over $150. This includes international orders. Go shop now at www.bartoncane.com. So I want to talk to you guys about Singin' Dog Double Reads.
1: Singin' Dog Double Reads is an online double read shop and one of the largest suppliers of high-quality and affordable professional and student reads for oboe and bassoon in the USA. Visit them at www.singindog.com to see all of their products, and you'll be glad you did. That's Singin' Dog Double Reads. Hi, I'm Galit Kaunitz. And I'm Jackie Wilson. And you're
0: listening to Double Read Dish, a podcast for oboists, bassoonists, and the people who love them.
1: So, Galit, I'm melting right now. Tell me your woes. (laughs) It is August in Missouri, and here's the bad news. It's only 9 a.m., but (laughs) the air conditioning is broken in this building, and I am telling you, I was trying to warm up this morning, and it was so hot that (laughs) I would play one phrase, and then I would give myself eight Fans like I'd grab the etude book that I'm playing out of, and I'd fan <laughs> myself eight times, and I'd put it back on the stand, and I'd play another section, and then I get eight oh. more. I am, I'm hot
0: in <laughs> the most uncomfortable way. This is bad. Listen, normally. I would have no sympathy for you because for those of you who know U.S. geography, Mississippi, where I am in Mississippi is a full eight-hour drive south (laughs) from where you are in Missouri. But I have been to Missouri in the summertime, and you are not fooling around with the heat and humidity. So I remember being shocked getting out of the car and how hot it was. And I got to say, my AC is working just fine. So good for you. (laughs) But we
1: just hung out this weekend. It hasn't been too long since we saw each other.
0: It was so much fun. Tell us about your adventure.
1: Okay. I started the semester last week and worked three days, first three days of class, and then I hit the road. And we were at the Georgia State Double Read Day this weekend, which my former studio May and friend Stephanie Patterson heard and wrote and said, hey, Columbus State is just up the road. Why don't you come give a recital, give a master class? We can do that beforehand. That is so cool and shiny. Yes, I loved it. And it was so good to catch up. That was my only complaint is, of course, you know, she's teaching and I'm traveling and everything. So we only got to sit down and have a chat for one meal. And I would have rather talked your ear off and hung out. That's how it always is, you know, Mm -hmm. when you use excuses like music to get together with your friends and then you never have enough time. But um, (laughs) I was so grateful for the invitation and it, it went really well. The students at Columbus State were flames and I loved working with them.
0: So wait, can you just tell everyone what your your driving schedule was?
1: Okay. Well, it's going to highlight my idiocy a little bit as well (laughs) because so I got up Thursday and drove all day Thursday from Missouri to Columbus, Georgia, and then had a dress rehearsal for said recital. And then you and I had booked an Airbnb in Atlanta because of course the purpose of being there was for Georgia State's Double Read Day and Georgia State Mm -hmm. is in the heart of Atlanta. And I didn't even think about the fact that on Thursday night, I would be in Columbus and Friday morning, I would need to be back in Columbus. And so anyone with like um, cells in their cranium would say, (laughs) well, that night you should probably stay in Columbus. But no, no, no. I decided to just add on an extra night to the Airbnb. So then I drove after my dress rehearsal from Columbus to Atlanta, 90 minutes. Went to bed, woke up, drove the ninety minutes back to Columbus, did the reset on the master class, got back in the car, drove the ninety minutes back to Atlanta, so I could beat you to the Airbnb and let you in. <laughs> and then the following morning, we proceeded to get lost in downtown
0: Atlanta. Oh, we just got so lost. <laughs> two, two, like. Non city people trying to drive in downtown Atlanta was probably really funny.
1: (laughs) Well, it was the road closures. (laughs) Like, I am not proud. I know I have a bad sense of direction. So I had my Garmin, but there were all these road closures on one way streets. And we got turned around and we were in the car for an hour and a half. It was not (laughs) funny or cute. I drive a Prius (laughs) and I use half a tank of gas. on oh, getting from our Airbnb to Georgia State. That's how bad that was it was.
0: Very stressful. Luckily, our host saved us.
1: And you came to town. You worked with the Georgia State oboes before the double read day, didn't you? Oh,
0: they were so great. So we had a master class for just the Georgia State oboes um, on Friday. And it was their first week of class. And everybody sounded so good. And I was... Like, not that I doubted that they would sound good, but it was the first week of class. Right. So I was expecting more pieces to be works in progress. And they were all just, like, they sounded great. (laughs) And it was amazing. Shout out to all the Georgia State double reed players for getting it done.
1: And then we had the event itself and this is our first time doing a live podcast taping. It was amazing. It was awesome. We had master classes with all the participants. We were playing on the recital. We played in the double read ensemble and we had this live podcast element where we let the participants come and answer questions and talk and they were so excited
0: and they were so willing to share. That episode is forthcoming, and you should definitely listen to it. It's just really, really cute. I'm so excited to share it with everyone.
1: Yeah, it's going to be a bonus episode live from Georgia State Double Read Day, and it will have um, brief interviews with our hosts, Lara Dahl and John Grove. So be on the lookout for that.
0: Mm-hmm. But now we're back to reality. Back to reality. So this is my fifth year total of college teaching. How much college teaching do you have under your belt, Jackie?
1: Um, eight plus years, eight years full-time. And then in my doctorate, I did some music apricot at a local community college. So So smart that you did that. Yeah. If you count that, it's a little bit over a decade, which makes me feel old.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Not old, experience. (laughs) Experience. Yes. (laughs) So how are you with the beginning of the school year now versus when you were just starting? From the
1: beginning of my career, I don't know. I feel like teaching is like any other skill. You know, where it takes experience and it takes time. And if you're ever improving and doing it well, I look back at my first couple years and I want to put a bag over my head in embarrassment mm-hmm. because, mm-hmm. you know, I was still just very much figuring things out. And that's part of the process. I've mentored other faculty members who are just out of school. And a lot of times they beat themselves up because, you know, they'll go about it one way and go, oh, that did not work at this school <laughs> with these students. And, You know, I feel like a failure and I try to just tell them that is a part of the process and we all look back at the beginning and go, "Whoa, what just happened here?
0: It reminds me of stand-up comedy and how stand-up comedians have to just workshop in front of an audience until they figure out what works. Yes. Um, My first, I remember getting up in in front of my first music appreciation class and it had, I think, 45 students in it (laughs) and just being like, this is insane. I can't believe I'm doing this right now. And I was a nervous wreck. And then when I transitioned to a different school, I mean, I taught a music appreciation class that was 190. (laughs) (laughs) So looking back at the 45, I was like, that was pretty sweet.
1: (laughs) What about as a studio teacher? What have you learned?
0: Oh, I learned to be a lot more comfortable in an authority figure situation saying okay this is what this is the problem that you're struggling with here's how you're going to fix it and if you follow x y and z 9 times out of 10 if it's going to get fixed if it doesn't get fixed we're going to try something else like just being a lot more decisive with my strategy with students than i have been in in the past every year i get better and better. And I'm proud of myself for that. Um, And then in studio class, we're actually using studio studio class time as learning rep, orchestral rep class, basically. So that's something new that I'm trying this year. And uh, I'm excited to do some score study and listen to recordings and learn the excerpts. And it's all going to culminate in a mock audition at the end of the semester using the excerpts that we've studied over the course of the semester. So it's like teaching the
1: students how to prepare an orchestral excerpt.
0: Exactly. What about you? What are you doing?
1: For me, private teaching, it's all the balance between providing structure and expectations, but also having flexibility to meet the student where they are and help them learn best because it's so individual. And I feel like a lot of times in the early part of my career, I overcorrected. I would... You know, have too much flexibility. And so I would respond with a ton of structure, and then Mm. I would feel like it needed more flexibility. And I feel like I found a really nice balance in that. In studio class this year, we are reading, it's kind of like studio class book club. We're still doing performance class and whatnot, but we are also doing a group read of the Don Green Fight Your Fear and Win book that I read last year that I found Love it was so valuable. Um, and in the book, he has several assignments. So you read this chapter and he says, okay, go make a, a list of this or respond to this or um, create your own highlight reel of past victories. And so they're going to have to turn those into me as assignments. And then we're going to use that as the basis of discussion. So uh, I'm super excited about that. It's the first time that I've kind of structured my studio class this way. So,
0: you know, more to come on how that works out. And I think it'll be good. That's really exciting. I remember when I was an undergrad reading um, Zen and the Art of Archery for the first time and it completely changed my outlook Mm -hmm. on performance and practice and all of that stuff. And I still remember like the aha moments I got from reading that book. So I think that's going to be really significant. I hope anyway. (laughs) Also, they have to have a planner and they
1: have to bring it to studio class and they have to show me the planner. (laughs) be the type a change you want to see in the world
0: if you're a bassoonist who needs great quality reads look no farther than go bassoon Handcrafted by Lee Miller Muñoz, these reeds are both high quality and affordable. She also makes contrabassoon reeds. You can find Gobasoon at www.gobassoon.com.
1: Whether you're an oboist or a bassoonist, everyone is on the lookout for a great reed knife. And good news, Genda Industries is making the reed knife great again with the Student Reed Knife by Genda. Genda Industries is known for its amazing quality and service in the double reed world, and in a world where the term student quality associates with cheap and disposable, Genda Industries is winning by making the best student reed knife ever. The Student Reed Knife features a tapered handle that will fit any hand size as you grow, a high-quality stainless steel blade that won't rust, And it's actually sharpened, you guys. It's ready for use right out of the box. It's designed to be used when learning how to sharpen. And most importantly, since it's a gender read knife, it is 100% supported by gender. Plain and simple, the Student Read Knife by Genda is the knife you'll want as you start your read making and adjusting journey. Add the code DRDGenda, that's all capitals, no spaces, at checkout, and get 10% off any Gender Read Knife, maintenance kit, Read Knife, sharpening book, cutting stone, or Read Tool Roll. Visit them now at GendaIndustries.com. Oh, and they're much more than just Read Knives.
0: We are so happy to welcome to the podcast Nancy Goris, Principal Bassoon of the Pittsburgh Symphony Orchestra. Welcome, Nancy. Hi, I'm glad to be here. I always love to start by asking our guests how they came to their instrument in the first place. So would you start by telling us how you came to the bassoon?
2: Well, I do have a very specific story since there is a very specific reason that this happened to me. I have an older sister, a couple years older than I. I'm from a very, very small farming town in Wisconsin called Lodi. We had no orchestra there, so there was no, um, a string instrument was not an option. So she played the clarinet and started in sixth grade, the summer before sixth grade, which was the time we all started in our band in Lodi. So two years later, when it was time for me to choose an instrument, she said, Nancy, do not play the clarinet. They had like 20 clarinets, even in this small town. 20 clarinets in the band, and every week they had to challenge. They had to have an audition and challenge for chairs. And she said, "We don't have any bassoons, so why don't you play bassoon, and then you'll you you won't have that issue." So I didn't really. I kind of knew what it was, but when I saw it, then the band director brought out some. Plastic. I think it was a police The soon went into the closet, you know, in the, in the dark closet in the band room. Anyway, and got this instrument, and so I started playing it, and I just loved it right away. And it was it was great. I was first chair immediately. You know, I was last chair too, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> but I loved it. I loved it immediately. I loved it, and uh, I liked the idea that it was big and it was beautiful, and um, I was the only one. So. That was great. So I was 11. It was the summer before my sixth, before sixth grade, long time ago.
1: Could you talk to us about pursuing your musical education and when you decided to pursue the bassoon professionally? Well,
2: that's a complicated question, and I um, will start by saying I, I, it, I love the instrument immediately. And I had a fair amount of success rather early, probably because there weren't very many people playing bassoon, of course, in Lodi, so after one year of playing, and my family, I drove them crazy, because I played all the time, played all the time, and they had terrible names for it, they called it the Foghorn, and <laughs> the Sick Cow, and all of these <laughs> terrible things, because I'm sure, you can imagine, I, you know, we all sound bad when we start, right? So anyway, I loved it so much. But in a year, though, I was studying with my band director, who was a trumpet player. Um, And I didn't have a bassoon teacher, but for the first year, uh, I I had lessons every week with him, and he had gotten his degree from the University of Wisconsin-Madison, which is about 20 miles south of Lodi. And so he encouraged me to go and play for the bassoon teacher at the University of Wisconsin, and his name is Richard Latchard. She's retired now. So I started studying with him in seventh grade. And I started playing in the Wisconsin Youth Symphony as well. And at that point, very early on, I decided this is what I want. It's the first time I played in an orchestra, and it was very exciting, and um, so I started going into Madison uh, twice a week, once for the Soon lesson in the middle of the week, and once on Saturday for Youth Symphony. And by that time, I was hooked. Well, seventh, eighth grade, I would decided that's what I want to do. And it's interesting because recently, I shouldn't say recently, not that long ago, I found uh, a little letter or article that I'd written about my desires for. For college and what I would do um, with the bassoon, and I, I just wrote what everybody's saying now. I don't know if I can make it, and I I want to teach, but I really want to play, and that's what I'm going to go for it. I'm going to I'm going to try and take the risk, which is what you know all of us do when we get to that point.
1: You did study Sherman Walt, and we love to ask people about their experience as students, especially when they studied with these legacy players, and we actually haven't had on a student of Sherman Walt thus far. Could you tell us a little bit about him and your experience as a student of his?
2: Of course. So I went to Tanglewood the B-U-T-I program when I was Um, after my sophomore year in high school. And at that time decided, oh, this is, I took one lesson with Mr. Walt. He had, he wasn't teaching there, but I asked for a lesson. So I actually studied with Richard Plaster for a couple of summers because I went uh, after uh, the two consecutive summers in high school. And I had that one lesson with Sherman Walt and I just thought, Oh boy, this is this is he has to be my teacher. Um, I learned so much in one lesson, and I just felt like this this was a new beginning for me. And I must say, um, I loved my teacher in high school, Richard Lottridge I can't give him enough credit and tribute. I studied with him from seventh seventh grade through twelfth. Um, he's still a very close friend. Uh, he's retired and lives in Madison, Wisconsin, still. So. Um, have to shout out to, to Dick Lottridge But anyway, I started with Sherman Walton then in Boston, and he was teaching at New England Conservatory. Because, But for me, coming from a very small town, I wanted a big university. I also had a keen interest in literature and academic things, so I decided I wanted to go to a big university. And he wasn't on the faculty at BU, but they agreed to... Um, employ him to teach me and while I was uh, attending DU. So so I ended up going to Boston University for that reason. It's interesting because I teach at Carnegie Mellon now, and it's a very similar situation there, uh, kind of a conservatory within a, a big, uh, very important university. Uh, I think it's really important to have diversity in your training, even though as musicians and the and reed makers, we have to really focus on, on the instruments. And, um, but anyway, I think it's always good to have a diverse education and that's what I did. So I started in Boston with Sherman Walt, and happily, I just felt I, I learned so much from him. And um, so I actually my third year at BU, the beginning of my third year, there was an opening in the Florida Orchestra. So I auditioned for that and started playing principal bassoon in the Florida Orchestra before I finished at BU. But I would trudge back and forth to BU to finish all my commitments with uh, my lessons, which of course I wanted desperately anyway. So that's kind of it as far as the education. Then I, I, I went back and forth between Boston and Tampa and then when I finished my degree, which I did finish, I, I have a diploma somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, did, I did finish, and ironically, what helped was the um, UTI for any high school kids out there. It was a wonderful experience, and I actually could graduate early with my degree from DU from, with credits from um, Tanglewood for, or, uh, for orchestra and uh,
1: chamber music. Fun fact: I actually had a graduate assistantship during my time at BU, working for BUTI. So I'm definitely very pro-BUTI as well.
2: Oh, fantastic! Yeah, I just thought it was just to me. It was just what do I say? Earth-shaking. Earth I mean, I, I I also attended that first year. I attended the Sarasota Festival. And at that time, it was called the New College Music Festival. Now it's the Sarasota Music Festival, and uh, I just was there. I'm on the faculty there now, so uh, that that really was it. Was my first time? I think I might have even gone a year earlier than Tanglewood. It was it was crazy, but I it was my first time on an airplane and going down to Florida and this incredible faculty: Saul Schoenbach and Leonard Sharrow, and talk about legacy names. I mean, there were all sorts of wonderful teachers there, and they, they still have a, a group, wonderful festival. I recommend that, too, because you can go to Sarasota, and then you can go to Tanglewood or Aspen or Music Academy. It's pretty great. And for me, that was just so, you know, I had, I, I had a great great training, and Youth Symphony was wonderful, but then all of a sudden I was thrust into the world with these <laughs> fabulous. Oh, another, another name uh, was Robert Bloom. Oh, Robert Bloom. Old. And, and um, uh, the, um, Julius Baker. So Jeez. think about that. I'm like 14, 15 years old, and all of these giants mm-hmm. are doing classes and coaching chamber music, and I'm listening to them perform. So all of these people had a tremendous influence
0: on me. That's amazing. Um, when listener Ritika heard that you were going to be on the podcast, she sent in a question, and it's a, it's kind of a two-parter. Um, But I'll read it to you. Uh, Could you please share with us your experience when auditioning for the principal position with the Pittsburgh Symphony? What are some of the biggest challenges you have to overcome? Oh, that's an easy question to answer.
2: (laughs) Well, um, you know, when it comes to auditions, and I had taken a lot of auditions before Pittsburgh. So, um, you know, Pittsburgh was, was, you know, all of those kind of led up to Pittsburgh. Um, I guess when I think about auditions, uh, you know, I I always tell everyone, don't assume anything. Don't assume that the audition you're going to take is the one that you just took or that you've heard, this is what this orchestra does, so expect this. I think if you go in without expectations, you'll be much more successful. But... But the bottom line with auditions, for me at least, was preparation. You know, people say, how do I keep from being nervous? Well, if you've prepared really, you have to prepare like, I don't want to say 100, I don't want to say 1,000% more than you think you need to, or start preparing earlier. You know, I've heard people say, well, the audition isn't for a month, or even two, and I have time. I'm saying, are you kidding? Two months before the audition, you should be ready. You should have mm. fifty reads ready to go. You know, you can't be over prepared. If if the list is twenty pieces and nineteen point nine percent of a uh, nineteen ninety nine point nine percent of the the rep, the the repertoire, you know cold, but there's one percent you're not sure about that can make you that can affect your entire audition. You know, it's. It, it, when you start auditioning, every, I always say to my students, what did you learn from what you did? Because let's face it, no matter how many people audition, all it is, it takes one other person for you not to be quote unquote successful. But I don't, I don't judge success at an audition of whether you've gotten a job or not. It's, I think if you're successful, if you're able to demonstrate what you're capable of doing, not only as a bassoonist, but as a musician, of course. And not winning an audition is not failing. So when I went to Pittsburgh, it's interesting, one little anecdote. They did one of those things where orchestras don't do that so much anymore, but they still do. They still do. They had so many players auditioning, they split committees and split halls, rooms. So one of the great things about Pittsburgh is they own their concert hall. They own Heinz Hall. So one set of preliminaries was on the stage and the other set was up in a rehearsal hall up, up on the fourth floor of Heinz Hall that was awful. <laughs> but, interesting. you know, you can't complain, right? Because anything can happen, right? So, so they also had the Hummel Concerto on the list. And I don't think I've seen that since or how many umpteen umpteen years? Hummel Concerto. Well, I, I I think there are great things about the Hummel Concerto. I'm not a huge fan, and I've never performed it. Not even today, I haven't performed it. But at then, I I never had even worked on it. So I learned that thing, and people were saying they're never going to ask that. You know, die 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 die. Di, di. You know that one. Yeah. I know it well. <laughs> uh, not going to not nobody they're not going to ask you. No, don't worry about it. Well, I'd already taken enough auditions to know if I didn't really learn that well, then it's going to it's going to scare me. And so I just I I just learned it so well that I could play it and they did ask for it. So, um I don't know. I think, I think that's a lesson. You, the lesson. That, that falls into a couple of categories, but certainly one of them is this idea of deciding ahead of time what's going to happen. You know, another thing happens a lot. People will say, oh, don't even bother to go into, go into that audition. It's going to be fixed. Or someone's been studying a whole year and they really like, like them, you know. And my answer is always, the only way you can assure that you won't get a job or win an audition is to not take it.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: So, um, and I also recommend don't take an audition if you're not ready. And I tell my students to say, well, I'm not going to get it, but I just want to take it. And I I don't have time to prepare. I say, then don't don't go. Because you're only kind of reinforcing uh, um, something, an attitude that that is not conducive to future success, in in my opinion. Mm -hmm. But uh, I it's just like the, 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 the opening of the Mozart concerto. If you can't play that perfectly in any kind of situation, then you'll worry about it. And you can't overpractice that. Look, the whole concerto is, is a huge story in itself. We all know that. Sometimes students will say, I don't like the Mozart very much. I'm not gonna play it. I said, then you shouldn't play the bassoon. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> if you don't like it and you can't can't give a performance that convinces your listeners that you're that you absolutely love this piece, then you're not gonna have a nice life <laughs> because we can't, you know, we can't avoid it. Now auditions concentrate on the exposition. So we all obsess about that. And and but we have to know the whole piece, obviously. But that exposition, at least you know, you and it's not I, I find that so many times people will will practice slowly or do something in the right way to start working on the technical things. And and then they get bored, whether it's Mozart or Marriage of Figaro or you know, all, all of the, the technical things, or Bell Piano Concerto. They start right, and then we get, you know, I, I say we because I have to, I have, I, I'm guilty of this sometimes too, but we have to be so diligent that we don't stop that, we start making progress and then we go, oh, I just can't do it anymore, and then we put the metronome up to performance tempo, and therefore we've skipped in the middle. You know what I mean? so, so there, there's a flaw in the technique, even if you can get it, you're playing it pretty well. Then when there's, you add tension, nerves, whatever, then we don't have the technical foundation to be able to just nail it every time. Mm, mm-hmm. You know, it's like when when I I, I auditioning for, for orchestras, for jobs, I, I mean, every. I'm not, I don't think I'll say anything today that other people haven't said, but sometimes it's, it's good to hear it again. <laughs> you know, I, I try to make my situation adverse, you know, I'll get, get, get out of my chair and run around the house sometimes and then sit down and play Mozart or, you know, when I'm out of breath, you know, I, what can you do to, when do you, what do you do when you get nervous? You get out of breath. So if you can... Practice any anything to put yourself in the situation, um, and know that. I think it's better to say, I just want to be so prepared. I'm gonna, I'm gonna be able to, to show what I'm capable of doing. And the other thing is, if you miss a note here and there, you know, I couldn't care less about that. Now, I can't. There will be. I also can't vouch for for committees because there are always people that have, hear different things than I do. And someone might say, oh, that person played out of tune. And I'll go, I didn't hear that. And, and that's something you think, or rhythm, you know, you think, well, those things are, con- those things are subjective. You can't, you can't, um, those things, it's either right or wrong. Well, even that is, is an issue. So um, you just have to do, have to be convinced. Don't try to play like you think someone wants you to. That's another important thing. When you go, just if, if you can, I think the bottom line is if you can, and, and this was always and still is what I want to do when I perform. I want to show, I want to take away all the obstacles, all the veils that we, we cover ourselves with to protect ourselves. And just really bring out what's important to me inside of myself. And I think that's probably, you know, we, we practice a lot of technique and we know it's, it's so important. We have to. It's a necessary evil. But the bottom line is the technique just gives us the tools to be able to open up what's inside of us. And I think when we can do that, some, uh, uh, a listener is sitting slouched in their chair and when they hear that, they sit up straight and really listen because there's really something there. And that's that's why when I teach, I don't say, look, play like me. Just do this. This is what you have to do. It, it, that, that doesn't work. I feel my job as a teacher is to help every individual find their own voice. I don't want my students to sound like me. They have to find their sound. Now, I have to help if I feel, you know what, this isn't, this this idea is not quite working. You have to figure out something that will be a little bit more convincing or whatever it is. So that that's a really long answer to the question I forgot you've even asked me. Uh,
0: <laughs> you know, that was something being able to play it how it speaks to me and not how I thought someone else wanted it was a huge yeah. it was a huge epiphany that I didn't have until very late. <laughs> <laughs> uh-huh. it, it is huge it is huge
2: and you know again I can't tell you how many times I've heard that over the years this is how I played I don't know why in advance I'm in you know whether it's Cleveland or Boston or Pittsburgh you know we have reputation but don't don't feel like oh I'm gonna this is my Chicago sound you know that just doesn't work it's not convincing even if by some miracle you, you, you are successful or advanced or whatever, ultimately, ultimately it doesn't work. And this, I mean, my, my general philosophy about teaching, but also about playing is you, you can't, it, yes, you have to be true to yourself. So you have to study the music. You have to, you have to be, know what's happening in the music. So we do serve the music. We play Mozart, we play Beethoven, we play Brahms. As the soonest we want, we are soloists. We also play an orchestra. If you want to play Brahms, sorry, you have to play in an orchestra. So, um, but, but the bottom line is anytime you perform, you have to play from your heart and your mind. If, you, if you're missing one of those components, It's not going to work right. And what I mean by that is what we always learn from our experience. So I, you know, my own experience was starting out and just playing like I'm feeling and thinking, oh, this is just the most wonderful thing in the world. And when I hear great soloists, I know that's what they're doing. If you're playing along, it's, oh, this seems right to do. Oh, I'm going to make a crescendo here. Or this is, I'm going to stress this note. Or, but and every time I play, it might be different and I'm just going to make it so wonderful. But if you're not really thinking about what serves the music, that's not ultimately going to work either. So um, when you hear great soloists and playing in an orchestra and actually being here, I mean, playing in the Pittsburgh Symphony, we've had all the great soloists and I've listened to them and I've learned from them here in Aspen. they all all the great, all great players come in and out all summer for eight weeks so I'm still learning from soloists and I think we should all be doing that and not miss an opportunity. But when I'm rehearsing with soloists I hear them maybe a rehearsal, a dress rehearsal or maybe two rehearsals actually before a performance, they're not making it up as they go along. they're doing exactly in the concert what they did in rehearsals but, I, I always feel that in a concert, special things can happen, but you're still using both your mind and your heart. And I think that's, that's a, 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 that is not stressed enough, I think, in our training now, because we just start and it's like you start on the left edge, and then you end, end up and see what happens. And mm-hmm. it just doesn't work that way. So I work a lot with my students and myself, too when I'm learning a new piece, a solo piece, where are the phrases? What do I need to do? What makes, what makes musical sense? What's what, what is the key structure? What are the leading tones? What are the resolution notes? Don't accent the resolution notes and read David McGill's book. Um, you know, sound, sound is, is, is another issue. You haven't asked me about it, but I'll talk about it. Please um, do. <laughs> when I first, was playing in college and later teens and 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 when I first started playing professionally, I don't know, I guess it was twenty. And I started playing in a big orchestra. I did a lot played in a lot of student orchestras and good ones because I, I then went to Tanglewood as a fellowship person. I played in some good orchestras, but when I started playing in a, a real professional orchestra, I and let me tell you, um I have to confess, I just thought my sound was wonderful. I loved my sound, <laughs> but I discovered that I didn't have the projection and the flexibility to play in a big orchestra and do what that demands. And it's only gotten more challenging as I moved up. I've played in a lot of orchestras in my career. And um, boy, when I sit in that chair, I had to play as soft as you can imagine. And also project in in Fortissimo. And I think that's been another one of my career goals in my own playing and in my teaching is the expansion of sound, sound quality, um, but also dynamic um, contrast. And always expanding. it. It can always be more. It can always be less. And I think what we find... Unless you really decide you're going to work on on it, not just on the, okay, here's a forte. I'm going to play loud. I can do that. Or I'm too tired. I'll do that tomorrow. Or I'll do it in the performance. No, it has to be like every day tirelessly. Long tones. Crescendo diminuendo. Or this, a concentration of figuring out, you know... What are we talking about when we talk about dynamics? It's all relative. I mean, my forte, I can't, or my loudest fortissimo is not going to come close to a trumpet or a French horn. I mean, we have to be realistic here. But within our uh, sphere, I think too many times bassoon is compromised. And and so it's like, well, we can't do it. And if you try to expand on this, your sound quality won't be good enough, and let, we can't have both. So let's do the quality. And look, I'm all for that as well, you know. And but I feel if you if you really work at it, you can expand without without compromising the sound. So for me, when I was in Tampa, and the music director conductor was saying. Miss Bassoon, you know, in, you know, kind of a not very nice way. You know, you sound lovely, but I can't hear you. You know, and I'm going, oh, no, I'm embarrassed and all. Oh. So I just got in a room by myself. I tell my students all the time, all, all the time, just get in a room where no one can hear you and figure out what you have to do with your air. For your air, your reads, I mean, it's very, very seldom do I hear a problem that someone's having, and I can isolate just one little thing about that, and that'll fix it. It's always usually a combination of how you use your air, your embouchure, um, the read, what you do with the read. Now, do I feel that everyone should play my read style? Not at all. But when I was working on this, I developed a read style just from trial and error. It was not pleasant. <laughs> you know, and if you... Everybody people will say, Well, I don't sound good when I play loud, so I'm not gonna I'm not gonna do it. And I say to them, get in that room where no one hears you, where no one can hear you and you aren't embarrassed and just blow. See what the instrument can take. Don't hide behind the bassoon, come out in front of it. Mm-hmm. And the same for the soft. What do you do to play soft? Everybody just clamps down on the reed. Hopefully, it can take it. But, you know, what do you have to do? And I would I would do tiny little scrapes on both ends, you know, for, for loud and soft. Tiny scrape. Oh, this didn't work. I'm not going to do that again. Or this worked. All right, I'm going to try it again. Oh, that's a little better. Uh-oh, now I ruined the reed. Too bad. Start again. And look, a lot of times... It, you can play super soft. You try to play Figaro. And, you know, when I hear people play, you usually play Figaro like Mezzo Forte. Mm-hmm. You're talking about winning an audition, you have 100 players, and two actually play that softly. It's, a, it's, a, it's an amazing thing. So why not figure out how to do it? And it's the same for the soft. I say, play as softly as you can. I like to use a very, very simple etude written by Pasquale Bona, that he wrote a long time ago for singers. Ironically, it's called rhythmic articulation, yeah. and as far as I'm concerned, it has nothing to do with either one of those things. It's about—it's—he a, wrote them for singers, simple melodies. And I say, all right, let's do all of this with those. Let's work on dynamics. There's no technique involved, and we we couldn't survive without the Milde concert studies, right? But I'll, some of those are so diff- difficult technically that we don't even get into what you what the, the phrasing, you know, it's like, if I can play all the notes, that's all I care about. But anyway, I love those two, but for really just learning basic line, phrasing, melody, these Bona things, and they start extremely simple. So it's not about technique, but boy, are they hard to do really well. But i say, start it as softly as you can, and someone says, oh, I can't do that, I can't do it. I'll go play and it sounds like too loud. I don't want to identify a, a dynamic like mezzo piano or something because it's kind of silly. But anyway, and then they'll say, but I can't play softer. Well, figure it out. How can you play? Oh, first time you really try, if you're playing a simple melody, you might miss a note here and there. If you're trying to figure out, you'll miss a lot of them. But wow, that's kind of a different feeling, isn't it? So what do you have to do with your embouchure to not be out of tune when you play soft? Hmm. To maybe need to change the read a little bit. Well, what is it? I mean, I'm I'm certainly no wizard. I I don't know the answers to everything, but we all have it within ourselves to figure it out for ourselves. And we all have different, the embouchure thing. I know if I hear somebody clamping down top to bottom and their chin is up, it's probably going to be sharp. But everybody has a different physical, you know, their jaws are different, their lips are different, so, I mean, I can help people figure it out, but ultimately, we all have to figure it out on our own, and in and, and my teaching, that's kind of what I like to do, because I think, ultimately, that you'll be the most successful that way. I don't want to sit down and say, someone put out, puts out a sonata and says, all right, and I say, okay, do this here, make a crescendo do this is, I don't think that makes a lot of sense my my whole philosophy is here are the tools to figure out figure it out yourself and the reason I do easy melodies is find the, find the phrase figure out what dynamic plan really serves the phrasing and when you make a crescendo and diminuendo don't don't do all these tiny little shaping things. We must do that. But we lose the forest for the trees if that's all we're doing, because I hear so much of that. So there's no real piano. There's soft for maybe a second or two. Or, or we're playing... We think we're playing piano and maybe for two or three seconds we're soft and then we drift up to that wonderful mezzo-forte-ish land, Right? Or we're playing forte and we think, oh, I'm playing really forte. And we do the same thing. We gravitate down. And so our playing sounds kind of bland. We think we're doing all these things. Of course, that's we all know about that too, exaggeration, right? You have to do it. But how do you really learn how to do that? I mean, when I'm playing for a long time and I still do it, I think I'm playing piano and I'm talking to myself, Nancy, are you really doing that? Oh, wow, I can play a lot softer. I mean, there are some things like it, when I play a solo in the orchestra, and if there's, if it's exposed enough, I'll when I make a diminuendo, I'll I'll actually I don't just think diminuendo, I think diminuendo as much as I possibly can, and then maybe it'll sound like a diminuendo. Boy, I'm really rambling, you guys. Well, you really just blew my are you mind. Still there? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, thinking thinking about preparing and. And audition taking, um, it's like everything, everything you do will help you in the future. All the time you spend, you know, I have played the Mozart concerto many, many times. And last, you know, whether it's in auditions or in performance with orchestras and, and the last time I did it, I thought, you know what, I don't know this thing well enough and the trills are still bothering me. I spent hours and hours and hours and I went through each trill and I figured out it, doing it slowly, getting out of it, getting into it, all of that. We know that the trills are icky, right? <laughs> or, or really figuring it. And I, I just spent so much time. It never even occurred to me that I should. And after I did it, I thought, why didn't I do this before? But it I'm just saying, again, how much care and thought goes into any any kind of performance, and you can't over-prepare. Now, the problem with, when I say over-prepare, if you do just something over and over again, and it becomes something that you play by rote, and then then little problems creep in, and you don't realize it, I mean, that's that's something we have to guard against, and that's a real issue. But as far as the really mindful preparation, I think that's important, mindful preparation. Don't start assuming that technique is something you do over and over again. It doesn't matter. You know, I mean, articulation is something else I haven't talked about. That's always always practice your articulation, what you feel you need for your performance because that takes more energy too. So if you're lazy with your articulation and then all of a sudden you're going to perform and you go, oh my gosh, what am I doing? And that's another thing that nine out of ten students come to me and saying that's not going to that articulation isn't going to go ten feet. I can't I can hardly hear it. I'm sitting right next to you, and the response is usually I don't like it if I articulate more. It doesn't sound good. But unfortunately, we can't play up for ourselves. We have to play for the you know the back the back row right. So again, it's exaggeration, with, my, with mindfulness. We have to, and, and I'm asked, how do you, well, then how do you figure it out? Ooh, I wish there was an easy answer there, too. I've, over the years, I, I, I listen to trusted colleagues. I listen, most of the time, to the conductor. Um, <laughs> I, because, you know, uh, anyway, I, I listen to recordings as much as I can, and again, there are they're always limitations, right? Because we're not always right and our advice is not always right. But, um, you know, just a, a little example, not that many years ago, I listened to a, a, a recording of a, a performance of Scheherazade that I played with the PSO. And I had to listen to the, to the solo a few times, I had to start it over. I played the, the, the G, the, the grace note at the beginning of it so quickly it was hardly audible on the, on, on a rec- on the recording. And if, if it wasn't audible on the recording, you can know for sure it wasn't heard in the hall in the performance. So I slowed it down a little bit, you know. I mean, we, 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 I mean that's, that's not articulation specifically, but articulation is huge. And and you don't have to have a, an ugly uh, articulation for it to, to carry, but we certainly, most, most of us, especially as students, we need to do more articulation. We have to make sure that that, that is coming out. So it's all of these things together. You know, and we, and we, and it, I, I can't imagine any, any profession that's more multitasking than, than being a musician. The good thing about what we do is, you know, I think of, you know, the classic brain surgeon or scientist or doctors, you know, if, if we make a mistake, no one dies or anything, <laughs> you know. So. I mean, I have played things in concerts where I wanted to, cr- I wanted to open the floor. I wanted the floor to open and I wanted to crawl in it. But, you know, if, if you don't, if you don't go out there, if you, if you don't really put yourself out, that's why we don't play with, what's inside of us because we're too afraid that we may fail and our, our opinion of what failure is it can vary and we have to adjust that as well and we have to know that okay if we do something that was embarrassing we'll get over it but boy I'd much rather hear someone play like that than someone that's protecting themselves and that's what uh, the true artist artistry is I feel you know you just have to do the most you can to prepare, and you have to know that it's not always going to work. And I would, I'm, I would, like I said, in audition, it's the same thing. If someone is really going for it, and let's say a note cracks, or, or a note is missed, that I, 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 doesn't affect me whatsoever. You know, that's another thing with people that take auditions when someone says, oh, I took an audition and the reason I didn't get it or I didn't advance is that I missed a note. and I'm, Sometimes I say, sometimes I don't. It depends on if they're, if they're my student. I say, you have to think a little bit more carefully because, yes, we work very hard and we don't like when we miss notes because it's embarrassing. But if, if you're making wonderful music, it doesn't matter. 'Cause who, who tell me someone who never makes a mistake. I, I've never heard of them. Mm-hmm. I've never heard heard know of that person, right? Okay, I'm sipping my
1: coffee now. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Are you there?
1: Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I would love to ask about commissioning and premiering the Concerto for a bassoon by Ellen Taff Zwillick.
2: Well, I I I couldn't be more excited about that concerto. I also encourage everyone, anyone to encourage your friends who are composers or your employer if you're playing in an orchestra um, to commission new works. I think it's just so important and there are a lot of people out there doing that and I applaud them. The Ellen Ellen Tafe Zwillix Concerto is I think fabulous. Please, everybody, play it. Audiences love it. I've played it many times. It's not easy. It's it's kind of funny. What what happened is uh, Lauren Lizell came to me. This was very early in my TSO life and said, we're commissioning a concerto for all the principal wins, and we want your um, advice on who you would like to commission for the bassoon concerto. And that was, I thought, my first uh, reaction was, oh my gosh, this is so amazing! I can't wait. And then I just, then I just thought, oh my gosh, but who's it going to be? I, 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 know a lot of composers, but I don't. I, who, who, who will I choose? So, I had heard of Alan, and I had heard a couple of her pieces, and I mentioned that to our artistic administrator, and he said, well, here's your contact information what you think and I said I'd like to get an idea what she liked. She's like, so I called her and we hit it off right away. She had just won her Pulitzer for her, I think it's her first symphony. She won a Pulitzer Prize and the first female, can you imagine? And so she she was a pretty big deal by that point. And she said, Oh, I'm really interested and she's living in New York and I we, we decided that when I when the orchestra came there, which was soon after the, the orchestra was going there, we would meet. So um, we, we met when I actually saw her, I think we were playing in Avery Fisher Hall, and she came to the rehearsal, and then when everyone left, I, I sat on the stage and she wanted me to play, and, and she hadn't written, written much for bassoon, so she was interested but wanted to learn. And we talked a lot about what the bassoon was capable of. Um, we talked about. She said, "What notes do you like? What what trills? What how high can you play?" And, and so I gave her all of the everything that we all know about. Don't don't go higher than like a B sharp, E, and only very specific high. Of course, these are high notes. <laughs> um, specific times will you go that high? And what instruments? Uh, she said, What instruments do you want? You know, I said, I said, Well, I love harp. That would be great. Um, and she wanted to hear register. She said, How fast? All these things. And, and, and we, were, we, we really got to be friends. And at that time, I have to say, because it was the early 90s, 93 was when, when it was written, um, there, we didn't have, <laughs> she, was, she was faxing me the music. As she was writing it, and she was saying, "What do you think of this?" and and um, so we were going back and forth on the first movement. And um, if anyone knows it, the first movement is not easy, but it's also not unfriendly. It's it's there are a lot of things in it, uh, nice things. And and then she said to me, "I I was reading it. I was reading it over a couple a few times." And she said. She called me, she said, Nancy, is it hard enough? And I said, Hmm, is it hard enough? And I said, Well, um, I suppose it could be it, it could be a little bit more difficult because I can I can pretty much play it as is. Well, she loves telling the story because she just <laughs> She just is so proud of herself because she made the second movement a lot harder. And it's, you know, there are lots of high notes, da-da, your know, high, high C, high C sharps. It's it's and so I mean there there are a lot of complicated things in it, and she she just thought she's just so proud of herself. But she also she wrote a cadenza in the second movement, and when that came when 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 that came in bits and pieces, but the cadenza ended on a high F, and I said to her. Ellen, (laughs) I said, E was absolutely highest, but only in special situations. She said, well, I went chromatically up to it. I I said, no, if you want your concerto, and we all know this can happen. If you want your concerto to be, oh, that's the one with the high F in it. Go ahead. And I said, if you want me to do it, I'm going to have to do a special vocal. And it's not going to be pretty. I'm not going to like it. I'm not going to be happy. Now, she's very strong, and she's stubborn. You know, she's the real deal. So I, I wasn't sure, and she she did take it out. So that there is a high E in the cadenza, but it's very playable. And therefore, it's not about the high S. So I think when you work with composers, you have to understand that they... Oh, th- this was the other thing. She did not put a harp in the... In the the orchestra, that was the only (laughs) instrument I requested. (laughs) Kind of funny, but I could. What she did perfectly because what I what I told her, and I think this is important to tell composers because they don't understand maybe so much. I told her there can't be a lot of competition in the orchestra accompaniment when the bassoon is playing. Because even though the bassoon, and, you know, I tell my colleagues this, and I tell students to remember this, the bassoon sounds louder up close than it than it actually seems out in the uh, uh, performance space. And so, therefore, sometimes, you know, our wood, woodwind colleagues will play louder because they think the bassoon is too loud. Now, the bassoon can be too loud, so I, I can't stress that enough, but... I did explain to her competition certainly in the same register that we're in is tricky, but any other instruments can be very much cancel out the bassoon sound. And you just have to be aware of that because if 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 there is that competition the bassoon won't be heard and then you have to you have to know that's gonna happen. So anyway. She, so she wrote this concerto, and it's a very strong piece. But when the bassoon is playing, the, the orchestration is, is very much compensated for. I mean, it's very, very much down. And in fact, she attended the rehearsals. And our first meeting backstage with Lauren Mazzell, and Ellen and myself, that was it, she opened up the score... And she said, maestro, thank you. This is just so wonderful. But, and she found a few places. She said, piccolo's too loud here. There's actually one percussionist, but it's like a drum set type double bass drum and all these percussion instruments. Percussion's too loud here. And and he said, well, you can't expect my, I don't know what what, what he used. I shouldn't quote him exactly but it was something like you can't expect to hear that this is all the time and she said yes I can and I will <laughs> Ooh. So, for, the, for the performances so you know and then he cowered in her presence I just loved it but, uh, and he wasn't a man that did that often but um, he did it and I was so lucky to have him for the premiere uh, conduct it because he was amazing in so many ways and um, so he conducted it, uh, and he made sure that it was balanced. And, but, the, but the concerto is, is not difficult to balance. And so for anyone who plays it with orchestra, make sure that you let the conductor in a very nice way, not in front of the orchestra, that it can be balanced and have people listening um, because it, it really worked. We recorded it as well, and um, just so lucky. And Moselle was, uh, and but Ellen, the question was about Ellen. She was, she's a wonderful person. She is 80 years old now and still composing. And I just saw her in New York a few months ago. Um, she's just a wonderful person. And I think she did us a huge favor. I don't know. Favor is not the word. She did a wonderful thing for the bassoon world to write this piece. And I've played this with, with Orchestras that are all semi-professional, they can play it. It's, um, it's not that it's easy, but it's definitely playable. And, so, and it also works wonderfully. I've had students play this on recitals. You pre, um, presser, but I think Presser, the publisher, has been bought by someone else. But uh, anyway, when you buy the music, the, the piano reduction, you can get a percussion part can't really do it without the percussion in my opinion, you can't really because it's too important. But all you need is a percussion, percussionist and he sets up all these instruments. so you can do it with one percussion and your percussionist and, and pianist and it works beautifully. I recommend anyone to do that because let's face it, we don't always have an orchestra. But I'll forget I'll never forget walking out the first performance doing a premiere. and that's what is so great about a premiere. Actually, Lauren Mazzell, who everyone cowered to, I mean, he was he was a very scary, he was wonderful, but he could be very scary. And I'm standing there, and we're just about to walk out, and he said, remember, don't worry, no one knows how this goes. <laughs> <laughs> it was really a nice thing to do. You know, I could just make it up, right? <laughs> so, it, it, It really, and and whether it's a concerto or a sonata or a solo piece or solo bassoon alone, it's a wonderful thing for everybody at any age. When you're, you know, when you're a freshman in college, you've got, you have friends probably who are in the uh, composers, ask them to write you a piece, you know, it's a wonderful thing. So I, I had that commissioned, then the PSO commissioned another concerto for me. And I also can't speak highly enough about it. And that was composed uh, by Alan Fletcher, who, who I became close friends with in, um, in Pittsburgh. He was the head of the music department at Carnegie Mellon. And now he's the president of the Aspen Music Festival. And he has been there, I think this is his 12th year. As I'm sitting here in Aspen looking at the gorgeous mountains. Um, anyway, he, he wrote a fabulous concerto for me. Now, again there were like twelve high E's. I said, Alan, you can do this? <laughs> and and he did take he didn't take them all out. He he did change how some of them were leaps and I said, Look, some players can do this. I, I can't and I can work on it and get better, but I these are things that were, were deal breakers. So he changed them. And parenthetically, why can't why do we have trouble with a high register? Right, from like C, we still, oh, right of spring, it goes up to a D. But if we, every day, in our warm-ups, played high E's, right, played E major and missed it most of the time and every, every few days we get, every, not every day, but every, every few days we get a little better in the high E. Well, my high E's got a lot better just learning this concerto. And it's gotten better over the years because I try to force myself to get up there. But that's why we have such trouble. Not, I'm not saying it's easy, but so we're in that Fletcher Concerto and you, your high E's will pr- improve, I, I guarantee. <laughs> so Andre Previn, wrote the, the, Andre Previn wrote the wonderful bassoon sonata for me. That's a fabulous piece. I think that's being played a lot. When I first read that, he was the pianist. And wow. I played it. We premiered it at, at the 92nd Street Y in New York. But I, it's just a wonderful piece, and not every pianist can play it. But I played it with a lot of pianists, and they can learn it. It's it's hard because there are a lot of jazz elements, and we're not always comfortable with that. But wonderful piece. And it's really exciting to have music that everyone can enjoy. And I some people say, well, would you mind if I played it? Ah. It's the biggest compliment I could get. Another new work that I've played that I recommend is um, uh, by David Ludwig, and um, he teaches composition at Curtis, and he's the grandson of, uh, of Rudolf Serkin, and he wrote a fabulous piece, one of the most wonderful concertos, there, uh, new concertos. It was written for Danny Matsukawa and commissioned by the Philadelphia Orchestra, so Get out there and play these pieces. No more Hummel. (laughs) No new pieces. No, that's a joke. I think Hummel is wonderful and we should all play that as well.
0: (laughs) Um, In closing, I'd love to ask you one last question. And that is your favorite memory of a past performance. There are,
2: there have been times I feel really fortunate to have Played in Pittsburgh all these years with with three incredible conductors. First one being Lauren Mosel, next one being Maris Johnson, who went from Pittsburgh to Konzerthaus and is also in Munich. Um, and my current music director, Manfred Honeck, playing the big repertoire with these two. And it's not like every performance is amazing, but with Mosel performances often time on tours where you'd feel on the spot, Berlin Philharmonie, um, the Salzburg Festival, playing playing Mahler, um, the Berkner, even Berkner, and I always try to stay awake in Berkner, but it's hard for the same But these are wonderful <laughs> pieces, big pieces, big Strauss pieces, and then our Mozart, whatever, with, with, with Moselle uh, and Janssen's boat, their final concerts in Pittsburgh. Mahler two, Beethoven nine. You know, with tears coming down my face when I'm playing. These are are things I remember. It was Manfred Honig. Now he's been with us ten years. We we do major tours every year, and it's not just tours, but it's 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 at home playing in Pittsburgh, but also playing in foreign places where audiences are really audiences are. It's it's very special playing for. And, and feeling emotional, emotionally touched when I'm playing, tears coming down, it, it happens. And and these are the times when I feel, this is why I'm doing this. This is why my life has been rich as a, as a musician. I'm so grateful for that. Um, and making music with 100 other people is very special. It can be trying. And to it, when you're running around Europe or whatever with a hundred people, it's not always pleasant, you know, <laughs> but, but I love my colleagues and I, 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 feel, as I said, really fortunate that I've had these opportunities. And, and I think that's what performing is about, you know, when, when the people around you that you're collaborating with are play as one and as frustrating as the, the person in front conducting can be, Everybody in performance, that all goes away, hopefully. It doesn't always happen. You know, you ask me for the special times. Well, when it happens, that's when you say, oh, right, that's why I'm doing this. That's why I've spent all this time trying to make my own playing better so that I can have everything I need to, to fit in and collaborate with all these people. It's, it's a very wonderful ex- experience.
1: You. We're so appreciative of you giving us your time and we cannot wait to share this with our listeners. You're going to get everyone in the practice room. They'll have no excuse now. <laughs>
2: <laughs> oh, I better start working myself. <laughs> well, it was my pleasure to talk with you and I just can't be encouraged anyone enough and you high schoolers keep at it and guys taking auditions. Don't lose heart. It's really difficult. Just pull yourself up after that audition and learn from it and know that your next one will be better. And it's just a process. And if if playing bassoon professionally or teaching professionally doesn't happen for you, there are so many wonderful things that what you have done as a bassoonist and a musician and what you've learned and what you've learned about focus and dedication will you, whether you work in, in other areas in the field of music or go somewhere completely different that doesn't seem to have any connection, I guarantee you what you've done in a, as a musician will enrich you for the rest of your life. It's really true.
0: Amen. Amen. <laughs>
1: Hope you enjoyed that super inspiring interview with Nancy Goris. Don't forget to follow us online on all social media, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We are there. You can visit our website at DoubleRedDish.com and pick yourself up a squad bag. They are going fast. And if you want to follow Galit and I... She is Hello Oboe at Instagram, and I am Wilson Bassoon at Instagram. And as always,
0: you can listen to us on SoundCloud, Google Play, or iTunes. Our next amazing guest is Gordon Hunt, oboist extraordinaire. And uh, Jackie, I think it's time to end this nerd parade. Go make reads.